In this last session today, um, when Craig titled the seminar something like what a pastor, counselor has learned in 30 years of ministry about marriage, um, in this last session, I'm, I've got two big things I want to say that kind of pull other things together. The first three sessions, I expounded Genesis 2, expounded Ephesians 5. We're going to be bouncing around even more in this session, but there are two major areas One is, what is the one key to a successful marriage? And then the second part is, what can you do to preserve and protect your marriage? And it's going to be six L's at at the end. And these are things that are very near to my heart. And so much of this just comes, some of it is dealing with my own marriage. and, And God has been working in me to teach me to be a person more of grace. And actually, the Dave Harvey, who spoke for us a few years ago in that book, When Sinners Say I Do, really made an impact on me in, in showing grace, not just in my marriage, but in other relationships, that I wanted God to transform me in that way. But then also, in over 30 years of counseling troubled marriages, what causes the wheels to come off? What areas are danger areas? Because my heart has been broken. Our hearts have been broken sometimes to see even Christians who have major, major problems in their marriages. So the first is, what is the one key? And you're not going to be surprised. It's the gospel. Uh, back to our theme verse, the mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the one key to keeping your marriage strong. As the Bible portrays our marriages as a picture of God's relationship to us, The way to be successful in your marriage is to know the love of Christ. We love because he first loved us. And if you don't know his love, you will not be able to love others as he has loved you, especially your spouse. The best single thing you can do for your marriage is to grow closer to Jesus Christ and to have an ever-growing appreciation of his grace for you. Nothing you can do in this life will do more to bless your marriage than that. And in concrete terms, that means to study the Word of God, meditate on the Word of God, with a focus being, I want to know more of how God loves me. I I mentioned earlier that the exhortation in Ephesians 5 to love your wife as Christ loves the church comes after the rest of Ephesians, which is about God loving us from before the foundation of the world and giving His Son to redeem us and the Spirit sealing us and when we were dead, making us alive. And the more you're enamored by that, that every day proclaiming the gospel to yourself, it's that message that's going to motivate you and empower you to show love to your spouse. In, In a marriage where both partners are growing in the love of Christ, and striving to show Christ-like love to one another. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of, things are either spiraling up or down in a lot of marriages. A lot of marriages are spiraling down in terms of judgment, where one judges the other, the other defends and attacks. And, but you can spiral up in terms of you show grace, it reminds you of God's grace to you, which makes you want to show more grace, which reminds you of God's grace to you. The gospel empowers the marriage in that way. And if you're single, this is one reason why you would never even consider dating, courting, or marrying an unbeliever, because an unbeliever does not know the love of Christ. They don't have the capacity for this. An assignment I often give to our counselees is the prayer that Paul prays at the end of Ephesians 3. And I can tell you with confidence 
that if this prayer is answered in your life, your marriage will be transformed. And the prayer is, I'm going to read it, Ephesians uh, 3.14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Is that what you need? It's not that you need your wife to change or your husband to change. You need to better know the love of Christ. And then he says, to him who is able to give far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations now and forever. Sometimes I'll give an assignment every day this week. Pray this prayer for yourself and for your spouse. Or write out your own prayer based upon this prayer and pray it for yourself and for your spouse. This is what you need. If your marriage is failing, you need more of the love of Christ. And then to know that love, the love of Christ is a love based upon grace and not performance. 1 John 4, verse 10, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We are by nature creatures of law. Unbelievers, believers, we have fairness in our minds, and we tend to want to reward those who treat us well and take vengeance on those who mistreat us. Romans 12 warns against not returning evil for evil. And when this comes into marriage, there's growing strife, anger, bitterness, even into separation and divorce. And many marriages, it's not that they're on even the verge of the divorce, but it's like, they're, you know how it feels when you're kind of running a low-grade fever, like about 99.7, and you feel crummy all the time, and you're kind of sniffly. You don't have pneumonia, you don't have a high fever, you just feel listless. And there are countless Christian marriages that are that way because there's this underlying anger, bitterness, disappointment, competitiveness, subtle acts of revenge. Well, if you're going to do this, I'm going to do that. And they're not yelling and screaming at each other. They're just coexisting without love. Aren't you glad that God doesn't treat you that way? He does not treat you as your sins deserved. As it says in Titus, He has saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, which He poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. God deals with us according to mercy. In this, when sinners I do, Dave Harvey does a great job in 1 Timothy 1. If you realize you're the chief of sinners, you're not going to judge the other person. (laughs) If you recognize your own Status before God is entirely being of mercy. You have no self-righteousness. Tim Keller writes, The gospel is this, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And so when you're applying that in marriage, your wife may be more sinful and flawed than you ever knew. But you in Christ can love her and accept her in Christ more than she ever hoped. God has shown mercy to you. 
And when you're aware of your own personal sin, you will not be a judge. James warns in chapter 4, verse 11, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Dave Harvey writes, Our greatest hindrance is our own confident morality. If you know how much mercy God has shown you, you're not going to be an angry judge. Proverbs says, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. You choose to show grace. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance, Romans 2. And it's the kindness of God flowing through you that's going to help your spouse to grow and to be sanctified. I can honestly say for myself, my prayer has been for some years now that God would turn me into a man of grace and not a man of law. I'm not there but I know that's what I need. And then you have to keep fighting to show this love. It's it's not something that happens passively. And I'll just mention briefly in Galatians 5, where Paul says, verse 16, Now I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, that you may not do the things that you please. And... Many couples, when they fight, the idea is, well, my spouse provoked me, and that's why I'm fleshly. But Paul is saying here, your spouse cannot make you fleshly. And the deeds of the flesh include anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, jealousy, strife, that your, your spouse is going to tempt you Actually, I can say with confidence, someday, maybe before this day is over, your spouse is going to tempt you to be fleshly. And I can even tell you it's going to be a battle. That's what verse 17 says in Galatians 5, that the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, that you're, you're in a battle. Am I going to walk in the spirit and display the, the fruit of the spirit as the spirit empowers me? Or am I going to walk in the flesh and be angry? Paul Tripp writes, The biggest battles in marriage are not the ones you fight with your spouse. The biggest battles are the ones that are fought in your own heart. Your spouse cannot stop you from walking in the Spirit. Your spouse cannot stop you, cannot force you to be fleshly. Back to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And so you need to tell yourself that when things are hard. I am in a spiritual battle, and my flesh says, I'm angry because she made me angry. And she has to change, or I'm going to continue to be angry. The Word of God says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You can endure. And we already touched upon, the love of God is a love which does endure. Um, C.S. Lewis writes, people get from books the idea that if you've married the right person, you may expect to go on forever being in love. As a result, when they find they are not, they are not, they think this proves they've made a mistake and are entitled to a change. Not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love, just like it did the old one. When a relationship begins, there is this flush of excitement. I think the biggest thing is this person really wants me. 
I can't believe it. Uh, amazing, they accept me and, and they want me and we're excited to be together. But over time, it goes beyond do I feel accepted and loved and fulfilled? And, and there are going to be times that are difficult. And that's where the commitment comes in that, as I mentioned earlier, they're going to change. You didn't just marry one person. You married whatever people this individual is going to come over a lifetime. And as God loves us with a covenant love which cannot be broken, it's everlasting and it's unchangeable. So we too, instead of the, the false expectation of the world that love is going to be easy, we realize that sometimes it's going to be a challenge because you're a sinner married to a sinner and you overcome the challenges by grace. A famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, and this is another thing I'll sometimes do, is just, I'll hear two spouses arguing, I say, can we just read 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 7 together? Would you please evaluate yourselves based upon what we just read? Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous, love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now what I'll also say about that is there's only one person who's ever loved that way. And when you read 1 Corinthians 13, again, rather than judging your spouse because they're not doing most of that list sometimes, Jesus has loved you that way. And Every one of those characteristics, you meditate on Christ has loved you that way. Having been loved like that, that's how he wants me to love in return. So the one key to a successful marriage is the gospel. And the more you know the love of Christ for you, the more you will be motivated and empowered to show gracious, even sacrificial love towards your spouse. And if, and if, your marriage seems to be in trouble, your love seems to be waning, rather than saying the problem is the other person has to change, you need to turn back to the Lord and draw closer to Him. And again, my goal would be for you, for me, that my spouse would see how I treat her and say, that reminds me of the love of Christ. Simple goal, right? If you get that out of the whole day, it was worth the time. May God make it so that my wife would look upon how I treat her and say, that must be how Christ loves me. Well, the second aspect of this final session is, well, what can you do to protect your marriage and preserve your marriage? Because a lot of marriages fall apart. You know, almost every wedding is a happy occasion, right? And it's exciting and it's joyous and they're supposed to go happily ever after. And I have to admit, when couples in conflict come to me for counsel, Sometimes I try to imagine these people ever even having liked each other. And I'm trying to think, on their wedding day, they were crazy about each other. What happened? Sometimes I try to get them to remember those things. What made you appeal to each other and what did you like? And so I've got six L's of what can you do to preserve, and I would even say potentially to restore your marriage. The first is the Lord. The Lord must come first in your life. You make your personal walk with Him your highest priority. Uh, 
when couples with troubled marriages come to us, we will often ask them, how is your own personal time in reading and meditating on the Word of God? How is your personal time in prayer? And almost in every case, we find that there's a correlation between a lack of a vibrant personal walk with God and a failing marriage. It's usually both of them who will confess that they're not doing well there. Peter says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. It's as you study the word of God, you're being strengthened in the spirit, and you're being filled with the love of Christ, so you have far more to give to the other person than they may be able to give back to you right now. So if something is not right in your relationship, it begins here to make sure your relationship with the Lord is what it should be. And then along with that, in your relationship to the Lord, it is very important that you remain involved in a strong church. God feeds his people through the public ministry of the word. He shepherds his people through the faithful shepherds as elders under Christ, caring for his people. And many of the cases who come to us at IBCD, it's a marriage in crisis And they're not in a church which is really caring for them and shepherding them. They have no one they can go to. There may be a matter that there needs to be further steps that could even be towards church discipline. Oh, our church doesn't do that. But we love the music. (laughs) I mean, I'm pretty open on lots of music, but you need godly leadership who are prepared to be engaged and shepherd sheep, not just draw crowds. I've also had couples say, I don't know what we would have done if we hadn't been in this church to bring us through this difficult time. And one of the booklets we have out there is, Help, I Need a Church. And a lot of people who come for counsel, they need a church. They need a church which will care for their souls and shepherd them. When you're in crisis, you need a church where there are older women who will care for the younger women, where there are men who will disciple the younger men. It's not just about how you feel for an hour on Sunday morning. The second L is laziness. And in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 30 and 31, he writes, Solomon says, I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. There are many marriages that look like the sluggard's field. Paul Tripp writes, things don't go bad in a marriage in an instant. There's an epidemic of marital laziness. Oftentimes during the courtship, your lives are consumed with each other, but then people get married And after spending every free moment together for months, over time, they gradually get caught up in career and kids and hobbies, and the marriage itself is neglected. Actually, on a Saturday, it's amazing to me you're here, because one of the big issues is the kids are involved in so many different things. All you have time to do is drive them places, and uh, there's little time for your own marriage. And when you get a new marriage, it's kind of like getting a new car, It may work great off the lot, but if you don't maintain it, it's going to break down. There's also a problem sometimes of inattention, that even when you're there, you're not really there. Your nose is already in the iPad or the iPhone or the television and not truly engaged with one another. 
even if there's not open conflict, the spark is missing. You know, the spark is, somebody was mentioning something about when you're at the grocery store and you see your wife and she's shopping down the aisle, do you want to go down that aisle or do you want to get away from that aisle? Um, hopefully you want to go down that aisle because you want to be with her. Sometimes it'll be the wife who notices things don't seem right, but the husband, oh, don't worry about it, everything's fine. It takes effort to maintain a marriage. Don't be lazy. And a couple of specific areas, and this is where I'm kind of flying at 40,000 feet, covering things that are in detail elsewhere. We have a whole series online on peacemaking. I'd like to do a whole spring seminar on that sometime in the future. Romans 12:18 says, As far as it is possible with you, be at peace with all men. And you're familiar, many of you, with the peacemaker material, how conflict can be dangerous. What does Paul say in Ephesians 4? Do not let the sun go down on your anger, lest you give the devil an opportunity. And what often happens in marriages is there are these conflicts. Everyday little conflicts is not some massive thing like infidelity. It's just disagreement of how to spend time, how to spend money, overcommitment, whatever. And there's a little tiff. And a day or two goes by and everybody cools off, but nothing's ever fixed. And that causes that low-grade fever I was describing earlier, where you're not furious with each other, but you're gradually drifting apart. Do what it takes on a timely basis to deal with conflict. The other analogy we've used before is that a lot of marriages are like an untended garden, which becomes full of weeds, all these unresolved matters, and now and then they'll take the weed eater and they'll mow down the weeds so they're not as visible. They keep coming up because they've not been dealt with in a biblical way. And one of the biggest problems I see in the counseling room is quarreling. Um, The proverb says, keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. If there's one thing I could tell you that would solve, I think, 80% of the conflicts that couples have be this one phrase. And again, this is worth the whole day. Okay? If, you can, if you can hear this and apply it, that is, fire your lawyer. Fire your lawyer. What I mean by that, when there is conflict, and I just, I mean, every day I see people doing this, where uh, the wife has a complaint against the husband, and what does he do? He defends and he prosecutes. I feel neglected. What do you mean you're neglected? I do this and this and this and this. Furthermore, you do this and this and this and this. And I've watched people do this for many more hours than I would like to remember. I've never once seen the lawyer act work. You may feel very satisfied that you've proved that they were wrong, that no, there's no charge against you. You are perfectly self-righteous. And you may have shown all of their failures. But if you're acting like a lawyer, you're destroying your marriage. The Bible says, get the log out of your own eye. Grant forgiveness where the other person has wronged you. Don't attack, but restore. Galatians 6. If someone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore them gently. Not as a lawyer prosecuting the person so you can feel self-satisfied that you showed them. Yeah, and you're sleeping on the couch. You're coming to help. Quarreling is of the flesh. So I can't go through all the peacemaker material. I can tell you this. Make peace quickly. 
If there's a conflict, resolve it biblically. If you want more material, it's on the website. There's a four-part series on peacemaking. And if, if you can't solve it together, get help quickly. Uh, I was disappointed yesterday to see a puddle of oil underneath one of our cars. Now, my temptation would be to ignore that. Do you advise that I ignore that? Right now, there may be a $50 solution. There might be a $4,000 solution if I wait. There are a lot of men who will not get help for their marriages until the car is literally on fire. And it takes a house without a wife in it or some kind of outburst to get his attention. Get help if you can't quickly be reconciled. Just realize there's going to be a lifestyle of peacemaking. There's going to be a lifestyle of confessing sin and granting forgiveness and helping each other. Another way in which people are lazy, in addition to failing to pull the weeds, it's failing to plant the flowers. Commit to communicate. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, James says. Proverbs 20 talks about how a man of understanding can draw someone else out. Philippians 2, in terms of consider others more important than yourself, that don't be so busy that you don't have time to share your life with your spouse and to take interest in them. Sometimes the most loving thing a husband can say when he gets home is, tell me about your day and mean it. He puts down the phone, down the iPad, off the television, and he looks at her and he lets her talk as long as she likes. That may be the kindest thing he could do for her that day. And then commit beyond that to building one another up. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Uh, most of your handouts in the handout section are communication exercises. Uh, I mentioned like the 50 questions to ask your wife. Um, there are several others evaluating yourself as a communicator. There's some of the books that we recommend uh, about marriage and about husbands and wives. I know Luke Priolo's book does a great job of how a husband can learn to draw his wife out and talk to her about important things. It's something we need to work at. Laziness, you will drift apart over time. Remember when you were recording and you wanted to talk about your dreams together and your inner thoughts together and that still needs to be happening. I found when we had kids, we could not do that successfully inside our own house. We had to get out and away from those kids so we could have a serious conversation. I don't mean a movie. I mean like a restaurant or a park or something where we could focus on one another. So, but it takes being deliberate to say, okay, I'm going to make sure every two weeks we do this. I'm going to make sure every day I at least ask my wife how her day is and I'm willing to postpone all the other things I want to do until I've actually heard that. So laziness can damage your marriage. And then the third L is lies. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Marriage is a covenant. You make promises to each other. You make vows to each other. And the foundation of the success of that covenant is trust. And Lies destroy that trust. More than once I've heard the victim of adultery say, I can forgive the sex, but I don't know if I can forgive all the lies. I don't know if I can ever trust him again. Paul is very vivid in his example. He's speaking to the church, but it applies in the marriage relationship as well. He says, 
We, are members, we need to speak truth to each other because we're members of one another. And the picture is like, the church is like a body. You're familiar with that illustration. And if, and if I can't trust my eyes to tell me the truth, like I'm jogging along and there's a big hole there that I'm going to step in and break my ankle and fall over. If my eyes tell me it's level when it's a ditch, I'm going to fall down. I'm going to get hurt. Well, husband and wife are one person, one flesh. And if you can't trust your other half, you're in a bad way. Some of that means humbling yourself and admitting when you're wrong and admitting when you failed. It's much better to admit your failures to one another, to confess your sins to one another and seek forgiveness than it is to try to pretend to be perfect. I was supervising a case in another state and there was a situation where there was a husband who had trouble with pornography and they'd put all the filters on his computer and all the safeguards and the wife comes back from being away with family for a couple days and all of the safeguards have been taken off the computer He says, I just don't know how that happened, he says. And it was pretty unbelievable that these filters would disable themselves and there'd be no history of of his internet activity over the weekend. Now, if he failed, that was not a good thing. But if he wants to rebuild trust, the best thing would be to say, I was weak, I failed, I know I'm wrong, I want to get help from a man for accountability, and I need to beg your forgiveness then at least the path to restoration can begin. It's hiding and lying that is devastating. And why do people lie? Well, we're selfish unbelievers in one sense. We're selfish and then we think we'll gain something. Well, if my wife doesn't know, I won't be in trouble. If my, wife, my husband doesn't know I got this ticket and I can kind of find a way to pay it, he won't know until the insurance rates double. I mean, why did this happen? Numbers says, be sure your sin will find you out. An honest confession is opportunity to begin the process of rebuilding trust. Sadly, I've counseled in situations where someone is so accustomed to lying, it's like, to to speak the truth is like teaching them a new language. I've actually said, it was like I told you, from now on, you can't speak English anymore, you have to speak Mandarin Chinese. That's all you're allowed to speak. It's that much effort for a person who's accustomed to saying whatever he thought he could get by with to learn to be honest and to speak the truth. But it's so necessary for the sake of marriage. And if you believe God, your sin will find you out. And then the damage will be all the greater. Now along with that, along with there being truth, there has to be grace. And that you wanted to be safe for your spouse to confess their sins and their faults to you without you coming upon them in judgment. Uh, You want, again, remembering you are a great sinner, to be grateful that he or she is confessing to you, and then you want to help them and to restore them. It's by grace. Then there's a fourth L, which is lust. Lust can destroy everything. Um, This section here is interesting. I worked on this several weeks ago. And I'd finished this section only after I'd finished it to find out that a very dear friend of mine had succumbed to this. And it was very heartbreaking to me. But these things are so true and I really have a burden to share these warnings with you. And and that is, we need to be circumspect in our dealings with the opposite sex. Um, We actually put up on our website an article that I wrote 20 years ago when another friend fell who was in ministry It's called The Tenderness Trap. It was published in the Journal of Biblical Counseling. It's there if you want to look at it after I'm done in 20 minutes. Um, 
you Christians plan to have a sexual affair. And yet, it happens a lot. And part of it is there's a mythology in the world that a man and a woman can have a close friendship in which secrets are shared with no danger of infidelity. That's just a lie. The world also has an accompanying myth is that people just fall in love and they can't help themselves when they didn't mean to do so. And one thing I've observed is that cases of marital infidelity have a pattern, especially among professing Christians. And I hear these stories. I don't want to ever hear another one again if I could avoid it. But I've heard far more than I want to hear. And it's a man and a woman, and they become acquainted. It could be at work. It could be at the gym. It could be a soccer league. It could be kids' activities. It could even be the church. They start talking. They find they enjoy one of this companies. Um, over time, uh, they become more personal in their conversation. They start talking about their marriages, the disappointments, the difficulties. And over time, one starts having a bit of a feeling for the other, but she keeps it to herself because no, no, surely he wouldn't feel this way. And then they find themselves looking forward to being together again. They start hiding some of their communications, texts, emails from their spouses. Then, as they notice they're more comfortable together, they're excited, they're looking forward to the next time they're going to see each other. And at some point, a barrier is crossed. And the hands touch and they grasp. Or there's a hug that is more than a brother or sister should share together. But then in that moment, instead of there being a shocked rejection, how dare you, there's reciprocity. Yes, I feel the same way as you. And the path to ruin can be very quick and many can be hurt. The point being, when you're joined to your wife or your husband, there's only one person you can be emotionally bound to in that way. You have to guard yourself against that. There was, this is even something the world has recognized. There was an article, it was in the New York Times, it's based upon a psychological study, and it's, it's called the, the 36 Questions That Will Lead to Love. And some psychologists had this situation where you would take two people who were not in a relationship, but I guess similar age, appearance, level, whatever, a man and a woman, and would have them ask each other, and I've got the questions in your handouts there, some very personal questions while they looked at each other. And at the end, they would look at each other for so many minutes. And the study showed, and the lady who wrote the article for the New York Times actually tried it with a colleague, that almost invariably, the man and the woman who got so open and personal with each other began to feel attraction for one another. And the article said, question number 37, after you've done the 36, is whether you want a big wedding or a small wedding. Research has confirmed, they say, that mutual vulnerability leads to closeness. And that when men and women spend time openly discussing their innermost thoughts and feelings with one another, mutual attraction is very likely to occur. I was at the gym last week, and I see a guy and a gal working out next to each other. And I could see by their body language and the way they looked at each other, I hope they're married. If they're not, there's trouble brewing. Um... When I wrote the article, The Tenderness Trap, part of the point was in counseling, there can be risk because you have, especially a male counselor, even if you've got a room full of windows, everybody can look in the outside and they see you're not touching each other, but there's a level of emotional intimacy that can take place. Because here's a woman whose husband is neglecting her and here's a man who will listen to her for an hour. 
sympathetically. And her husband's ungodly, and this person's quoting Scripture. And, and here's a man, perhaps, whose great need in life is to be needed and appreciated. His wife knows him well enough. He's not quite as great as everybody else thinks he is. But she thinks he's great. And slowly, but almost surely, they may drift towards an inappropriate emotional connection, which can result in a physical failure. And this happens in the world all the time. Uh, you hear about actors on a movie set, and the actor and the actress fall in love. They, they're intensely working together closely. Uh, former CI director General Petraeus recently did a plea bargain because he had revealed classified information to his female biographer with whom he had been sharing an adulterous relationship as they were working on the biography together. People who do ministry together, and again, I've had multiple cases over the years in our counseling center where people who are doing ministry together became inappropriately emotionally connected the whole time in their naivete, not not realizing where this was going. And it created an emotional bond, sometimes leading to a physical bond, which was adulterous. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Be careful if you think you stand lest you fall. Don't think it can't happen to you. If it happened to a man as good as David, it could happen to you. And you want to be careful in relationships with the opposite sex, not because you're planning to do wrong, but because you don't trust yourself and you want to be careful. And when you become married, and I would say even when you become engaged, you're making a decision to cut off all other options. And cutting off all other options means not making yourself vulnerable to kinds of conversations and connections which can lead to the mutual attraction which God forbids. I think it's very important that husbands and wives talk about these things, make agreements together. Uh, It was actually about 20 years ago when my friend then fell, and I wrote that article, that Carol and I had some very serious discussions and just guidelines that I will not be alone. She will not be alone with a member of the opposite sex in a restaurant or a car or other such situations. Uh, If ever there's an exceptional situation, we have a house guest who needs a ride, we will check with the other person prior to, if possible, or afterwards, certainly. And there will not be absolute privacy in conversations with the opposite sex. And this even pertains to phone. Now, if, if a woman calls me and she, you know, we're supposed to be under shepherds and we shepherd women, not just men, but I would much rather meet with her and my wife or even if I'm on the phone, I go and say, I'm going to come into the room with my wife. I'm usually at home and she's going to hear my side of this conversation. I may put her on speakerphone. It's not that I think anybody's up to anything. I just know how these things happen. And if someone's pouring out their heart to me, if my wife or even somebody else is in the room simultaneously, there's an entirely different dynamic than if it's just two of us together. We do not have privacy on email, on texts. Uh, we're totally open about that. Any email or texts I send to receive with women, my wife is copied on. And uh, no flirting. There is no such thing as innocent flirting. And I'm kind of naive about these things. Other people are more sensitive to it, but I'm told there are a lot of Christian men and Christian women who are kind of flirty. And there's this little bit of electricity that can take place. It all seems fun, but there's no such thing as innocent flirting. And then you don't discuss personal matters, especially the relationship with your spouse with someone of the opposite sex. If you need to pour out your heart to somebody other than your spouse, 
found a godly older person of same gender. Back to Titus 2, older women should teach younger women. And that's why at IBCD, if a woman's coming in, we want a woman to counsel her. If a man has to get involved, there should be somebody else, ideally another woman in the room, not to facilitate what could go wrong. And if nothing else will motivate you, consider the consequences of moral failure. Uh, One of my fellow elders who's here today, many years ago, kind of gave us as elders an assignment to write down what would happen if you fell in this way. Who would be affected? How would it affect them? In Proverbs chapter 6, it says, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He would destroy himself, does it? Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man. He will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied that you give him any gifts. You can't be too careful. And if boundaries are being crossed, quickly confess, seek help, seek accountability. Every day you delay your heart may be hardened and you're living a lie. Well, my fifth L is more uplifting, and it actually corresponds well to this one, and that is lift one another up as you strengthen your marriage. Last year, our speaker was Sam Crabtree, and you can go online and for free listen to his talks, which were amazingly wonderful on practicing affirmation. Many of you were here for that. But he talks about how affirmation is both biblical and powerful. We listen best to those who affirm us the most. And getting back to the affair, again, this is a Wall Street Journal article about why people have affairs. And it says in there, women cheat primarily because they are emotionally dissatisfied. I think it's largely true of men too. It's not just sex. It's rarely, primarily sex. It's relational. And if in your marriage, and and Crabtree talks about how in a lot of marriages, in relationships, it begins when you're courting and there's lots of affirmation and very little criticism. This person finds me attractive. They want to spend the rest of their life to me. They're telling me all the things they like about me. Very little negativity. But typically in a marriage over time, the affirmation diminishes and the criticism goes up. And the lines cross. And he says that affirmation is like putting a deposit in the bank of relationship. And criticism is like making withdrawal. Now, in a godly marriage, sometimes we have to rebuke and correct each other. But the way you can do that is when you're convinced this person loves me and accepts me, though I'm a sinner, and they affirm my feeble efforts towards godliness, it's a lot easier to take the criticism saying, I know this person's on my side. I know they love me. I know they accept me. And... Now I can listen to them. But some relationships are way overdrawn. And it's really hard to listen to someone that you think completely rejects you. And many women fail to affirm because they've been to a conference like this and they heard all the great expectations of the perfect husband and their husband isn't meeting the grade. And so it's, why can't you be like him? There are many men who fail to affirm because we men tend to manage by exception. 
If things are right, well, they should. Dinner's on time, tastes good. That's why I hired you. You know, that's, that's what I expect. And if it's wrong, then I correct it. It doesn't work. I have received that instruction from my wife. And again, both spouses become discouraged and vulnerable when they say, I can never satisfy this person. This person will never accept me. I'll never be good enough for them. And that's what makes them vulnerable to another relationship. And so look for that which can be affirmed. Uh, One passage for that would be Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... Whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And as I mentioned, if there are two things in my life I've been trying to change, I've been trying to grow in. One is I want to become a man of grace. The second is I want to affirm that which is affirmable. I'm really good at seeing what's wrong and correcting it. Some of you have tasted that from me. But whatever is affirmable, whatever, and, and what Crabtree points out is affirmation is biblical. Because what we're doing, we're not pumping up people's egos. He calls it God-centered praise of those who are not God. And it's like Paul can even write to the Corinthians, who were a flawed church. But he could say, in these things, I thank God for you. At the end of Proverbs 31, you know, her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also. He praises her, saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Grace enables us to praise imperfect people for the evidences of what God is doing in their lives. The analogy I've given is that if there was a blade of grass on the moon, we'd get pretty excited about it, wouldn't we? Because the moon is a barren, dead place, and there will not be a blade of grass on the moon under current conditions, in my understanding of things. But if you have a person who's a sinner and struggles, and you see a blade of grass, a kind word, an effort towards doing what is right, instead of saying, I'm hoping for a whole yard full of tulips and all I get is a blade of grass. Or, praise God, there's a blade of grass. That's amazing. That's wonderful. That realizing what weak sinners we are, anything that smacks of honesty, kindness, grace, love, self-sacrifice, duty, we should affirm that, giving God the glory affirming the good work God is doing in others. And it is very powerful. I've, I've been counseling. I've tried to ask people, okay, you started off with all your complaints about each other. I want you to write down five things that you really appreciate about your spouse. And sometimes the reaction is, when they hear it, boy, I have not heard you say anything like that in years. That's an indictment. People of grace will affirm. When you know someone accepts you, and cares about you, it's even then much easier to receive the occasional correction. Proverbs says, sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. So, in in summary of this last talk, first of all, just beware of the, the five L's I've talked about, that beware of the dangers of neglecting a relationship with the Lord, Beware of laziness in your marriage. Beware of lies. Beware of lust. Learn to build each other up, lift each other up and affirm instead of tear down. Uh, Like a vehicle that tends to break down over time, without proper maintenance, the second law of thermodynamics takes over in your marriage 
and you can drift apart. It takes effort of grace and love to continue to maintain the marriage. And then the the key beyond all else is to reflect the gospel in your marriage. Not to be law. Just, again, our natural bent is to go back to law, back to judging, back to being the lawyer, justifying myself, condemning her. God wants you to be a person of grace, and you will never show as much grace to your spouse as Christ has shown to you. But it's good to try. Paul can tell the Colossians, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And then you can also be confident that God is working in your marriage. He's working to make you more like Christ. He's working to sanctify you. He's teaching you about his love for you as you learn to love someone who's hard to love. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for all, so that they who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Christ has saved you, not just to get you to heaven, but to make you a person who can reflect his gracious love to others. There's no better place to do that than in marriage. Amen.